Welcome to Let's Start an Argument. Your hosts are Cecilia Koch and Jason Werbelov. They're going to be taking you on an intellectual journey through the following controversial questions. Can black people be racist? Does your race color your experience of the world? Does race even exist? And is a phone reaction required to address past injustice? What makes you black? Uh, number one, my skin color. Yes. Um, and also, there, there's a lot of things that makes me black. Where I come from, the people I, you know, the group of people that I belong to. Obviously, I'm different from a white person. From that basic, basic thing, yeah. My color and, and the people that I come from, yeah. Does the difference go beyond just skin color? No, sometimes it depends on how white people interact with black people sometimes. And also how black people interact with white people. But besides the color of the skin, I don't think there's a difference between between black and white. Yeah. So white people, some have blue eyes, some have brown eyes. But I, I haven't seen much discrimination based on, on those characteristics. But I've seen discrimination based on color. Like if your skin is white and it's black, then there's, there's, there's much of a, you know, a comparison that is much more stronger than the eye color or the, the nature of your hair. Yeah. So that was Victor, a student Jason and I spoke to on the Wits University campus. We wanted to get a sense of what people think about the nature of race. We're going to chat a bit later about Victor's views on race, but first we want to get a sense of what other students thought. I didn't really choose that, firstly. <laughs> um, I grew up in the township, basically, and then because of certain cultures, the people I was around, I, guess, I basically got different cultures, and then that's how I knew, like, okay, I'm black. It's something that sets me apart from different races because the foods that we eat, the way that we talk, and are here, I guess, because I've been mistaken a lot for a different race, so I can't really say skin, you know, complexion, yeah. I'm black, and then people think I'm colored because of my complexion or my eyes. People think I'm colored, yeah. yeah. It's really, I don't know, it's my skin color. That's, that's all it really is. I mean, you know, I don't think I pick myself like categorize myself differently because i am white um but yeah i don't know i guess you know there's always obviously heritage that you get from your parents and everything like that but other than that i mean yeah like i don't really see myself different you know that's me well according to to the societal um standards what makes me black is the color of my skin difficult question this is a very difficult question but i think first what makes you what makes me black is uh the color of my skin <laughs> that's what makes me black and then um, I also think background plays a role there is a way in which a black person is raised and there's a way in which a white person is raised so I think those uh, two factors are most important color of skin and background for me it's basically the same um, with addition to my hair that's also what makes me black yeah so how I was raised uh, the struggle yeah that's what makes me black Today we're going to be talking about 
race and the nature of race. And I guess, you know, one interesting starting point for the two of us is the fact that just a couple of decades ago, if we were sitting in Nazi Germany, we would be considered very different races. And in fact, we would not be able to be doing what it is that we're doing now. Right. Just yeah. just engaging, you know, yeah. human being with another human being. So, I mean, that's kind of kind of something, right? Because today, what race are you considered to be? Well, that's really hard. So I, I grew up thinking I was white and thinking I was Jewish. And I found out recently that apparently a lot of people don't see it that way. So they see white people, well, they see Jewish people as not white. They see them as something else. I'm not sure what that something else is. It's not colored exactly, but it's something else. It's Jewish. But other people look at me and they see white. I met my ex-partner's parents mm. who are quite staunchly Afrikaans and very proud of their culture. And they did not see me as white. And when I was engaged to my ex, they saw it as a problem that I was engaged. He was engaged to, well, beyond the fact that we were gay, which is really complicated, <laughs> but, 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 but they saw it as weird and problematic because they were pretty racist that he was engaged to, to a non-white person. So there was this interracial union that was about to take place. Yeah, uh, which is not cool, apparently. Apparently not, yeah. according to some people. <laughs> um, I think I think what happens is that people often assume your race depending on 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 their agenda. So okay. so they'll assume I'm white when they want to mm. say that I have privilege, and and they'll assume I'm straight even when they want to say that I'm like a, a patriarchal male. But then they'll assume I'm Jewish if I go to Israel, for example. So I was mm. walking around in Israel, and everyone thought I was Jewish, I and Jewish. and I've kind of tried to disavow my Judaism. But you know, people would come up to me in the street, total strangers, and say, "Welcome home, to <laughs> welcome home." And I, yeah, and I was like, well, like I'm, I'm, just I'm visiting. Just visiting. I'm not home. Um, but but yeah, it feels like uh, I d had I have very little control mm. over my race. Mm. You and I are rather skeptical of the notion of race. And I think up front what I'd really like to tell our listeners is that that does not mean that we deny the existence of racism. Right. And I think that's an important point for us to unpack. Perhaps a good analogy is that of witchcraft. So basically people were persecuted, burnt at the stake for being witches when there is clearly no such thing as a witch. That's a great example. So some people might think there are witches just because they were persecuted. Quite right, yeah. Um, and, and I think we're going to get into that later. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Just because we don't think there's race doesn't mean we don't think there's racism. Exactly. I mean, just earlier I was saying that my partner's parents were are racist, racist yeah. right? Mm. And in Nazi Germany they were racist. Mm. But we wouldn't want to say, well, you and I, and we're going to get into this shortly, don't want to say that there are races. Quite right. Yeah. So it's the belief in races that brings about this idea of racism or the belief in in witches that brought about the persecution of witches as opposed to actual races and actual right. witches, right? right? So yes, exactly. We will get, we will get into that. But I think let's maybe start with the false biological notion of race. Yeah. And there are various biological accounts. And I think maybe just to, to unpack how we're going to be looking at these accounts, perhaps it's a good idea for you to just describe necessary and sufficient conditions since right. you have lectured on this <laughs> for many years and are in the perfect position to, to give us this explanation. Well, it's actually quite hard to unpack these things. But what we're trying to do here is we're trying mm. to give an account of race. Mm. So we're trying to say, what is race? Exactly. And when we're giving necessary and sufficient conditions, when we give a necessary condition, we're saying, without this condition, it's not this race. Okay. Mm -hmm. And when we give a sufficient condition, we're saying, whenever this condition holds, it is this race. 
we're looking ideally for an account that gives us both necessary and sufficient mm-hmm. conditions. Mm-hmm. Now, that's quite hard, mm-hmm. as we'll see shortly. So we might even just settle for an account that only gives sufficient conditions so that mm-hmm. if you've got this, then you've got this rate. So mm-hmm. let's give an example. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Exactly. some people Examples might say right. a skin color, mm-hmm. skin color is sufficient for race. So they might mm-hmm. say if you've got the skin color, then you have this race. Mm-hmm. Or if you've got these genes, then you've got, then you're part of this race. So if you lighten skin tone, then you are white. So that would be an example of a sufficient condition for race, which we're skeptical about and we're going to get to shortly. Exactly. I'm just wondering, I mean, in terms of elucidating that uh, the concepts of necessary and sufficient conditions, do you want to give maybe a, a more handy example, you know, something that people can really relate to quite easily, just so that we, we are clear on those terms? Right. Okay. So we might say, so whenever you talk about a sufficient condition, you're saying if this, then that, and that this is sufficient for that. So here's an example. If it rains, then the grass will be wet. Okay. So we might say that raining is sufficient for grass being wet. Now, a necessary condition, when you say if this, then that, the that will be necessary for the this. So we might say if it's raining, then the grass is wet. So the grass being wet is necessary for it to be raining. Quite right. Okay, fantastic. That's, I think, a, a nice uh, a nice example that steps away from the whole racial debate, just to, sure. to clarify those those terms because they're quite important. Um, yeah, because we're both philosophers. Exactly. And we love talking about necessary, necessary and sufficient conditions and yeah. all these all, all this jargon, but it's yeah. important just to just to tap into exactly what we're talking about. Exactly. So let's start with the first false biological notion of race, and that centers around the idea of genetic material. Basically... Scientists have, you know, studied all of this and they can say that, you know, two people might share more in common in terms of their DNA from two entirely separate population groups than two people within that population group. So it looks like DNA or genetic material is neither sufficient nor necessary for race to obtain biologically. So, so what she's saying is that, okay, so there's this idea out there that if I'm white, I'm going to have different genes Mm. from if I'm black. Exactly. And what you're saying is that these scientists have found that if you look at lots of white people and you look at lots of black people, there's massive overlap in their genetic structures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there might even be more similarity between white and black people than between white and white people or black and black people. That's a a beautiful way of explaining exactly what I just said. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, super. I love being called beautiful. (laughs) I didn't call you beautiful. I I said the way you explained was so beautiful. (laughs) But you're beautiful as well. Thanks, (laughs) Steve. Right. Okay, so moving on. Our next account that we'll examine is a I think it's a more prominent one and that's the account of skin color let's look at what it means to be black or white in terms of skin color what can you think of as the obvious counterexample to this account okay so so what what are you saying you're saying that if you have light skin you're going to be white Quite and if, right, you, if yes. you've got dark skin you're going to be black yes okay so we we went around and interviewed people and we, we will have listened to these our listeners will have listened to these interviews at the beginning and uh, one of them her name is Molly I think yes, yes. That's right. and Molly said that people often mistake her mm. for being colored exactly they misrace um, her they misrace her she is black, she says, Mm -hmm. Um, but people misrace her as colored. Why? Mm -hmm. Because she has very light skin. Mm -hmm. Now, I have a brother who's also Jewish white, according to, well, I don't know according to whom, but but he's Jewish white, supposedly. (laughs) Supposedly. Um, And he's a tennis coach. So he's out in the sun all day and he's Mm -hmm. very dark. Mm -hmm. He's darker than Molly. But he would be considered white and she's considered black. Exactly. So it seems there's this weird, color. yeah, yeah. And if you were to take out, what, what do we need to do according to this account? We need to take out a Pantone chart. 
mm. and, and see, okay, from Pantone's 1 through 36, mm. they'd be white, and mm. from Pantone's 36, well, 37 to 45, they'd be mm. colored. And, mm. you know, so, so on the Pantone chart, mm. the idea is that you'd be able to specify exactly which tones would be white, would black, colored. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. And, and there's a few problems with that. So the mm. one is like cases like my brother and mm. Molly. Mm. So where they'll have the wrong Pantones for the range. And the second thing is it seems quite demeaning. Sure. So it seems like, it seems like you're objectifying people. Like let's say we, in a future episode, we're going to talk about affirmative action. Right. Now, if we base affirmative action on Pantones, what mm. are you going to do? You're going to walk into an office mm. and you're going to pull people aside and pull out the Pantone chart and say, mm. ah, you are Pantone number 36, which means you're on the cusp, but you're white right. or you're colored. That yeah. seems quite demeaning. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think back to another very strong counterexample, of course, is that of albinos. So albinos skin tone will often be even fairer than, you know, many people that are considered white, in which case skin tone does not seem, well, seems neither necessary nor sufficient for race to obtain as well. So the response to that's going to be, mm. well, they're exceptions. They're exceptions, right. right. Exactly. But so that's why I used my so brother's the pantone, case. The pantone, uh, yeah, because that's mainstream. Molly bears out exactly this point. Yeah. And another really interesting thing about race is if you look at what is considered to be black and white in the States. This is very different from contexts such as Brazil. How so? A lot of people that are considered black in the States would not be considered black in Brazil. Wow. Yeah. Why is that? Because there seems to be a bit of a different threshold. And in fact, like most people, I think in Brazil, as far as I know... Threshold in terms of color? Yeah, threshold in terms of color. So you I have to be black, really, very, like very, very dark. Black. Right, exactly. Okay. And I think most if you're in people, Brazil, I'm assuming. That's right, if okay. you're in Brazil. And in Brazil, you know, there is this incredible mix of people. And most people wouldn't actually identify, I don't think, as white or black, but rather as pardo, which actually means brown or mixed race. And there's this wonderful podcast on roughly translated, which is the name of, of the series. The actual podcast is called Brazil in Black and White. And it takes you through these crazy contradictions and these strange ideas around race and how race is seen to be incredibly context specific. What counts as black in the States certainly doesn't count as black in Brazil. In terms of skin color. In terms of, in terms Which of is a big color. problem. Yeah. And, and the yeah. reason it's a big problem is that when we start ladling on normative terms, so mm. I'm using more philosophical jargon, I apologize. What I mean by normative terms are when, when we start ladling on shoulds and shouldn'ts, or right. right and wrongs, mm, mm. or goods and bads. Mm. Moral language. Yeah, moral language. When we mm. start ladling that on top of mm. race, mm. you want to be absolutely sure who you're ladling. Absolutely. You want to be sure that when you're persecuting a certain group of people, that you're persecuting the, the right, right group, group of people. people. Yeah. Mm. Or, or when you're saying this group of people is responsible for this atrocity, you, you want to make sure, sure that, yeah, yeah. So, mm. so here's, here, I mean, here's a case. So, mm. so let's say, let's say I misplaced my car keys mm. and I say, uh, you stole them. Mm. You stole my car keys. Mm. That's a very bold claim. Yeah, that's a serious claim. Yeah, yeah. Now, when we're talking about white privilege or we're mm. talking about misappropriation of, of, of people's stuff and, mm. and, and taking people's stuff, and we say white people did it, we better be sure what we mean by white, white people. people. Mm. Yeah. And when we say black people should receive preferences in, in job selection, we mm. better be sure what we mean by black people. Mm. On that very note, if you look at South Africa, I mean, that's kind of interesting because a lot of people who would be considered black are not considered black for the purposes of, of affirmative action. Very strange, right? Mm. So two of the people that we interviewed were from Zimbabwe. Right. And we were talking to them and saying, well, you know, for the purposes of our affirmative action, you wouldn't be considered black. Quite right. And yeah. that just seems super strange. They'd be considered what? I wonder what they would be considered as, but this, it's certainly not black, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, which, which is very weird. Which is kind of weird. Yeah. So we want to have more clarity around right, what quite we right. mean. 
another thing that bears out the problem with the account of skin color is obviously the way race classification boards worked under apartheid. You know, people would sort of move between racial categories just depending mm. on the racial classifier mm. who was responsible for classifying them. So it was this completely nonsensical thing. Yeah, so you could pass happening. as colored yeah. or you could pass as white, which yeah. is a terrible term. Yeah. I mean, it's terribly loaded. Yes, very and, loaded. And they would use, because skin color was not always a very good proxy, they right. would use things like pencil tests. So that brings us to the next account, the next biological account that we're going to look at, and that is one based on morphological features. What do you mean and by morphology? Exactly. So right. let's unpack this term. Well, what I mean by morphology are features such as one's nose, one's mouth, one's eye shape, or one's hair texture. So this is where exactly the infamous pencil test comes in. That also just seems ridiculously right. Demeaning Right Terrible I mean let, let's say You put more gel In your hair that morning Right What if yeah. you straightened Your hair well, yeah. you know. Or what if you have Plastic surgery And you change Your morphology Yeah Does Do that you change Your race, race? Exactly an interesting case is Michael Jackson. Right. So he changed his morphology. Did he, in so doing, change his race? He wanted to look like Diana Ross. Right. I'm not sure that meant he wanted... Was Diana Ross white? I have no I have no <laughs> cultural knowledge at all. You're going to find this during these episodes. Um, I think she was. I'm, I, I feel really weird <laughs> pronouncing on someone's race. Right, right. We shouldn't assume a race at all. I, yeah, all right, let me... Let me, let me I have no idea. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Well, well, whether he perceived her as right, yeah. white, I don't know. But, but he changed his cheekbones, his... Right. His right, nose, right. His, does that his mean skin his, color too? Yeah, his skin color. Does that mean he's no longer black? Who knows? It depends on the account that one's going with, right? right. So in terms of the morphological account, it would mean uh, if he no longer had what is considered a black nose or a black eye shape or black lips, I guess on that account, he wouldn't be black. Right. But would he be happy with that? Or I would don't other know. people be I don't content know. I don't this? know. But we better be sure if we're going to include him in a group that has moral, has normative terms associated right. with it. Right. Exactly. And another example is my brother mm. and different brother. So I have two. I don't have that many. Just Just the other brother. <laughs> <laughs> and the other brother has very curly hair. And mm, right. if he grows his hair mm. to a certain length, he mm. would fail a pencil test. Right. Let's look at the next biological account of race. So we basically just to sum up there, we yes. say morphology is, is not going to work as an account. No, it doesn't seem so, yeah. right? Again, yeah. it doesn't you're gonna, you're provide get too many account examples. Uh, yeah. Conditions. Quite right. Yeah. So, I mean, up until now, we've looked at the account of genetic material. We've looked at the account of skin color. We've looked at the account of morphology. And now another common one that is often brought up is one based on geographical location. Right. So a lot of people will say, well, I'm from a particular race because I come from a particular area. And all of those people from that area are of a particular race. But the thing is, scientists have found that even within a particular geographical location, there is an enormous variance in terms of ancestry. And a lot of the time, you know, two people who might look very similar superficially can be traced back to very different ancestry. Right. So geographical location, again, seems a bit problematic. Yeah, but you see it coming up a lot. Quite so right. um, in, in the people we interviewed, mm. uh, we saw that coming up regularly. That's right. I think in almost all of them. Mm. Um, and also you see it coming up in our social media and in our political debates. They'll say, you're African, right? African means black. But what does that mean for me who was born in South Africa? And I'm really pale, Cecilia. <laughs> I mean, you can't, uh, listeners can't see this right this now, but, but can you can tell them. Yeah, the I'm like paper. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I go out in the sun, I don't just burn, I boil. <laughs> True. I broil. <laughs> I have seen this happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but 
I'm, but what is that? But I'm born in South Africa. Mm, mm. So what does that make me? Clearly, geographical location is neither necessary nor sufficient for you to be of a particular race. Yeah. You're born here. You're from yeah. here, but you yeah. wouldn't be considered black. Well, it's not sufficient because I'm born here, but I'm not South African, but I'm not black. So mm. I'm born in Africa, but I'm not black. It's not mm. sufficient. And it's mm. not necessary. Mm. Can we come up with a case where you're born outside of Africa and you are black? Mm. Well, that would be mm. easy. Like, mm. let's say a black person's born in the Netherlands. Yeah. Exactly. So it's neither sufficient nor necessary. Right. Right. So now we have run through all of these biological accounts and they really seem to be incredibly mainstream. But this is so what's so weird. They're Mm. incredibly mainstream, but Mm. very easily dismissed. They're very weak mm. accounts. And the strangest thing is that people seem to be quite comfortable categorizing others in terms of race groups. But when you say something along the lines of, well, you know, science has debunked uh, the notion of race, then they'll nod their heads in agreement. At least biological race. Exactly. Biological race. Then they'll nod their heads in agreement. That's really strange. Mm. So... But we use them over and over. So that's really odd. This is one of those, those examples of where like non-philosophers, this is terribly demeaning, but not, <laughs> non-philosophers don't seem to care about the philosophy involved, which is why we want to do podcasts like this, which, which right. is why we want to talk about this, because we really want to make it clear that, that there's no good reason to think that your biology informs your race. Right. And we're going to take it further now. We're going to yeah, step yeah, off biological. Yeah. Notions, is that right? We are about to step off biological notions. What I wanted to say was, you know, if someone sort of points at someone and categorizes them as black, I mean, what they're doing in that instance is they're just referring to someone's skin color as, Um, as I would be like saying, Oh, look at the tall guy there, right? Right. So they can't be referring to the biological marker that is necessary and sufficient to constitute race when they say something like that. So it's important here to point out what we mean by race. We might mean one of two things. Good point. So we might mean this social group Mm. that has a certain cohesiveness, Mm. that can act together, that has a certain group experience, Mm. a group identity. Lived experience. Yeah, yeah, lived experience. Mm. Might be persecuted in certain ways Mm. or in the case of other Mm. other race groups, might have perpetuated certain persecutions. Mm. So we might be talking about that kind of race, which Mm. is what you might call a thick conception of race. Right. Or we might be loaded. Yes. Or we might be talking about a thin conception of race, which is Mm. more like what I call a mere aggregate. Mm. So it's just a bunch of individuals that share a certain feature or Mm. trait. So so for example, all the people that have black shoes, Mm. you wouldn't think they constitute a social group with a social consciousness, can do stuff together, are responsible for mass atrocities or mass Mm. goodness. Mm. You just think, okay, it's all the people with black shoes. It's Mm. a set of people, set of individuals. Mm. It's one way of classifying. Yeah. And I think the biggest problem Mm. with biological accounts is Mm. they're only pointing to that thin conception of race. Mm. But when we talk about bigger notions, which we're going to be talking about in future episodes, like what is it like to be black Mm. or what is white privilege? There we're using thick Thick conceptions conceptions of race. race. So Mm. you can't use biology to support thick conceptions, only thin conceptions, which won't get you affirmative action. Right. And white privilege. And yet this seems to be happening, right? I mean, yeah. you know, generally what, what will happen is there won't be any sort of like deep research undertaken in terms of what your race is. It, it, someone will look at you and sort of classify you immediately. Right. So, so that, that is a rather interesting thing that just happens. And I mean, we want it to stop happening. What we might get thrown at us is the fact that we're being colorblind. Right. So let's maybe just deal with that objection okay. as well. I mean, okay. the point is we're not saying, that we can't see color. We, we obviously do, you know. We're not saying we can't see thin conceptions of race. Quite right. I mean, yeah. it's quite clear that someone has curly hair, someone has straight hair, someone yeah. has blue eyes, someone yeah. has brown eyes. But even there, we might get it wrong. Skin. So mm. I, I almost got it wrong with Molly. I thought when she was walking over, yeah. I thought, can we ask the question, what makes you black? Because yeah, I'm not I, entirely sure whether yeah, she's black. Quite right. Um, yeah. so you can get, get it wrong even thinly. 
That's right. Yeah. Exactly. And that's a really important point to bear in mind. Mm. So a lot of people will say, okay, fine, let's disregard the biological notion of race. It's proven to be false. Race is more about self-classification. Right. This is rather interesting because we have these examples such as Rachel Dolezal and in South Africa, DJ Kazim Lungu. And these women are generally, I think, perceived to be white but identify as black. From my understanding, yes. Rachel Dolezal is American? That's that right? right. Okay, so Rachel Dolezal grew up as white yes. or as commonly conceived as white or like yes. people perceived her as white. So she decided that she was black? Yeah, okay. right. So, she so had, she decided that she was black and she identified as black. She identified as black. And, and she the, identified with a black cause. So she was, right. you know, involved in all sorts of advocacy. And this did not go down well. Once it was unveiled that she was masquerading as something that apparently she wasn't because what she would do was she would, you know, use dark makeup to, to look darker. Uh, you know, her hair would be sort of crimped. It didn't go down well at all. Yeah. So there was a mass outcry. Mm. They felt she wasn't black. Mm. Black people said she wasn't black. White people said she wasn't black. Mm. Um, there was mass outcry and, and they mm. felt she was doing something morally repugnant. Wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. By comparison. Let's look at someone, mm. for example, like Caitlyn Jenner, who when Caitlyn Jenner was still Bruce Jenner, came out and said, for all intents and purposes, I am a woman. Yes. And that was celebrated. Mass support, yes. Hugely celebrated. So it seems like the way we treat transracialism, Mm. in other words, moving from one race to another, Mm. is very different from the way we treat or understand transgenderism. Exactly. And there's there's massive upset around uh, transracialism, but Mm. a lot of support, and it seems Mm. like it's very progressive mm. today to be transgender. And the thing is, you know, when you ask people about these things, well, they say, you know, well, these are social constructs. Okay. And now that is a term that, I mean, what is a social construct, right? And when you yes. ask people this question, they're like, I'm not too sure, but you know, it's a social thing, right? Yeah. Um, or society creates it. What is society creating? How right. are they creating it? What is right. coming into existence here? What is the nature of, of these things then? Yeah. And why, if both of these things are social constructs, are they treated in such incredibly different manners? What makes that come apart? So I think because you wrote your PhD on this kind of stuff, uh, you're in the perfect position to elaborate on social ontology. So on what things exist in the social. Right. I mean, what kind of accounts can we look at that would give us race as a social concept or as a social construct? So the first thing I'm going to say is I don't think there's a good answer to your question. <laughs> so so I don't think there's a good... I think there's a few things that can't be answered here. Right. So the first one is what kind of reasoning or what basis do we have for treating transracialism and transgenderism differently? I don't think there's a good ontological or metaphysical reason. By ontology, Mm. like Cecilia said, we just mean the study of what exists, like what's going on. And metaphysics is the nature of existence. So Mm. when we're studying what's the nature of race or the nature of gender, it it becomes really weird to try and answer these questions. But Mm. I'm going to try. Or I'm going to try to give an account, the best account I can, Mm. on behalf of someone who believes in the existence of race. And then we're going to see where that holds up. And that's a pretty charitable thing, I think. I would just want to point this out, that you're doing here. Because people who claim that there are these social constructs often just claim them. And they never give an explanation. There's no reasons. There's no arguments. There's no substantiation for these concepts. So I think what you're doing here is, you know, you're building up a steel man here of these concepts in terms of the social. So 
let's have them. Okay, so now we are about to dive into deep philosophy. Okay, all right. <laughs> Here we go. So okay, firstly, it's it's important to point out that what we've established so far is just you alone believing that you're part of a certain race is not sufficient to be part of that race. And Rachel no, Dolezal is an example. Yeah, and I mean, look, if you and I were to, for example, walk into a boardroom and say, look, we are black for the purposes of this particular job that we're interested well, it, yeah, in. Yeah, affirmative action, right? Yeah, so they say, what color are you? And you say, no, we're black. We're black. They are going to be like, are you out of your mind? Like, obviously, you guys are just and then, smoking something. And then if we say to no, but we identify as black, mm. or mm. let's say I do it. So mm. I walk in and I say, I identify mm. as black. Mm. They say, well, that's not sufficient. No. You're not black, not. right? Exactly. I wonder what, how that conversation would go. Would they whip out a Pantone chart? Like, how would it work? I mean, look, there are such mm. things as as racial auditors. So we could, I suppose, you know, get Apparently one of them on the Apparently, they use Pantones. I'd love to well, hear from one. Well, I mean, that is rather fascinating because yeah. in this day and age, for, for the purposes of racial Yeah, what if, there's, what if someone doesn't agree? To the race that they're classified as. Right. Yeah. How, who gets to then decide? Yeah. You know, do we go to the courts? Like, I want to apply for a job just to do this. I mean, that is a really fascinating <laughs> point, right? This so, would be amazing. So everyone who says, no, you know, it, race is all about self-classification and whatever you identify with. Sure. Well, it just doesn't seem to be the sure. case. Sure. Okay. So we've established yeah. that just me, just when I identify as a certain race, that's not sufficient. But no. we might say this. We might import an account used in social ontology circles by Margaret Gilbert. So Margaret Gilbert says this. She says... In order for me to belong to a certain social group, it's not just sufficient that I believe it, but that's one of the elements. It's one of a few elements. So the first thing is I need to believe it. Mm. The second thing is the other people in the social group mm. also need to believe that I'm part of the group mm -hmm. and I need to believe it of them. Mm -hmm. So together we believe that we're part of this group, that we're part of a we or us. That's her account. And her account stems from this philosopher named Simmel, who basically said what makes you part of a group is that you're a we or an us. You have this like group, this groupness. Mm, okay. Groupness. Yeah, mm -hmm. groupness. Like okay. It. So, okay, so here's the problem. Here's the problem in the race case. So, yes, it's possible for me to believe I'm black. And it's possible for me to believe that there's a whole bunch of other people that are black. Mm -hmm. But sometimes they won't believe that of me. So, in mm. the Rachel Dolezal case. Right. Another problem is I don't know all those other individuals. So nope. I don't I mean, know every other group. black person. It's enormous, right? Mm. How many black people are there? I mean, that's such a complicated, you know, question on a number of um, well, levels. But assuming I mean, there's, there are black exactly. people. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yes. Which is obviously not yes. something that we assume. Yeah, Millions, right? billions. Exactly. Okay. And like, how are you going to, you know, I don't know to... each of them, right? right? And they don't know me. Mm. So how could we have these beliefs about each other? other? Exactly. Okay. So this is one problem with Gilbert's account when it applies to large groups like blackness. Mm. Now, there's a, a potential solution. There's a response to this. The person could say, okay, you're straw manning the account. There's a better way of understanding the account, which is I don't just have to believe it about each and every other individual. I don't have to believe it about them specifically. Philosophers call that de ray. I don't have to believe it individually about each of them that they're black. I just need to believe it of them as a group. So I need some description that will satisfy the group and I believe it of them. And when they have this belief that they're black and I'm black, I'm part of the other group that they believe is black that satisfies some kind of description. The question is, what's that description? So we can't right. say, well, I believe that I'm black and that all these other people who are black are black because then what are we doing? That's We're defining circular. blackness in terms of blackness. And as you say, that's circular. Yeah. It's viciously circular. It doesn't yeah. give us any new information. No. So we'd need some other term other than black, some description other than blackness mm. that applies to all the other people that we think are part of this group mm. of us. Mm. But what would that be? Now exactly. we've gone through, this list, gone through the list, right? It wouldn't be genetics. It wouldn't be morphology. It wouldn't be skin color. So then what? Is, is it? it? What is it? And I don't think there's a good answer to that question. 
So when people say that blackness is socially constructed, mm. well, what do they mean? It mm. seems they mean something like Gilbert's account, mm. but that fails. So it's interesting because this social construction, I mean, ultimately does seem to have at its core biological notions of race, right? Or am I misunderstanding? Is well, that, is it that can. Tra- it depends on what that description is. Right. So if that description involves genes or involves skin color, et cetera, then yes. But mm. the problem is, as we've seen, those mm. descriptions don't adequately, necessarily or sufficiently pick mm. out the right people to be right. part of your race. Molly wouldn't be included if right. skin color was part of that description. Right. Yeah. So is there, aside from this particular account of the social construction of race, Another one that could do the job? Okay, so there's another philosopher named John Searle, and John Searle gives this long, complicated account of race. Well, not of race, of social phenomena. He talks about everything from money to cocktail parties to political parties, and it's a single account, which is very attractive to philosophers. And it's really complicated, but basically it comes down to this. Mm. What makes you part of a social group Mm. is that you, together with the others, collectively agree that you're part of a social group. The problem when it comes to race, of course, is that we don't all agree That seems to be the basic problem. And we see that in the interviews. Exactly. So when we've spoken to people on the street, they all have very different ideas around what constitutes race. So there's not this agreement. There's lots of differences. And yet, okay, so uh, Seoul also talks about things like money, states, um, borders, that kind of thing. And there seems to be more agreement around that. Correct. So so in the case of money, it makes sense. What Mm -hmm. he'll say is Mm -hmm. this note Mm -hmm. counts as legal tender Mm -hmm. because we collectively agree that it does. Exactly. I mean, in actual fact, it's just a piece of paper. Yes, correct. So he'd say this individual piece of paper Mm -hmm. counts as this social phenomenon, money, in this context, South Africa. Mm -hmm. The problem is we can't create an equivalent, he calls them construction rules. We can't create an equivalent construction rule when it comes to race, race because we can't say mm. this and point to every single mm. black person counts as black in mm. South Africa because we don't know who those people are. We don't know them individually and we don't have descriptions that pick them out necessarily or sufficiently. And we've gone through that when it comes to the biological description. When you point at a, at a note of money, people are going to say, yeah, that, that's a piece of money. They may disagree with the fact that it exists or, you know, they may have take issue with that sort of thing, but they'll all say, yeah, that, that's, that's, a that's a, that's a 10 round note. That's a 10 round note. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. there's, you know, nothing yeah. I can do or say to change that. So. Yeah. By the way, I'm skeptical about money existing too. Um, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and Bitcoin is a really interesting case that, exactly. really, that really starts to raise some conceptual questions around fiat money generally, fiat currency generally. Right. Right. But we'll put, that aside, because <laughs> we'll we can talk that about that forever. For the moment, yeah. right, exactly. I think we've covered, basically, if I'm not mistaken, all the kinds of conceptions of race that are currently floating about. I want to um, add one more. Okay. Because it came up in our interviews. Right. And it wasn't something I'd really thought about before. And it was this idea that what makes me part of a certain racial group mm. is that I was brought up a certain way mm. to behave a certain way. And that black people behave differently from white people. It came Absolutely. up a few times in, exactly. our, in our interviews. Yeah. So the immediate counterexample that, that comes to mind mm. is uh, Johnny Clegg. <laughs> so Johnny Clegg... I don't know the exact history of Johnny Clegg, but I know that he was sort of raised in a black community and that he was raised to behave in a black way. He dances in a black way and he lives in a black way. Now, Mm. I'm sure we're going to get flack for this because they might say, well, he's not behaving like a real black person. Yeah. And I mean, black is also just this crazy term, right? Because it encompasses so many different cultures. I mean, Johnny Clegg is known as the white Zulu, you know, and being Zulu is very different to being, uh, you know, being Venda or. Yeah. So that gets complicated. Exactly. But also there's this bigger question, which is what is 
black behavior. What is black behavior? Yeah. Exactly. And, and, the, and that's where things get very uncomfortable mm. because sometimes black people who seem to behave in white ways, if mm. that makes sense, mm. are labeled awful names like that's coconuts right. or, exactly. or other unmentionables. And there are serious questions around if we were to define what this list of behaviors is mm. that black people engage in or white people engage in, I'm not sure what they'd be. So you've pointed out something really interesting, and that's this the thing about people looking black, you know, and, and generally I think they might be treated as black, whatever that is. But uh, as soon as they perhaps hold views that are, are considered not to be black, they just aren't black. Then. Right, which, Immediately is, which is another weird thing, like black right. beliefs versus white beliefs. Right, right. What, um, is, what, what is a white belief? What I, is a black belief? I don't know. So they'll talk about like when during the heart of the Fees Must Fall movement, mm. they would talk about science being white right? or, or teaching mean? white philosophy or black mm. philosophy. Now, does it just mean that the theorist who came up with the theory was white or black? Or does it mean that it has a certain kind of ethos associated with it? So and the problem the with the first, itself. yeah, mm. like the science itself is or, white. Or the idea itself, as opposed yeah. to the person who's just, who's yeah. proposed the idea. Now, have you ever met a white idea? Have you ever like shook its hand or like seen its whiteness? Frankly, <laughs> I know what kind of a question this is. <laughs> of course, I meet them all the time. No, what would a white idea look like? On what basis can I recognize it as being quintessentially white. Okay, so I don't think it's going to work to say it's based on the ethos of it. Mm. I don't think it's going to you can't you can't point out like typically white ideas. Mm. But what you might say is that okay, a white person came up with the idea. But mm. then it gets really weird mm. when a black person agrees. Yes. Because then what do you say? Do you say exactly. you're a traitor? Well, I mean, that's exactly this notion of of false or double consciousness. There is this idea of being a race traitor and there is this idea of this person's perspective on life having been distorted because they've been immersed in, in the oppressor culture, which right. would be considered the white supremacist or white hegemony kind of culture. Mm. So in other words, if you don't believe the same ideas as everyone else in your social group, you no longer are black or you like, you're a black sheep, like, yeah, how, what does that what does that mean? And I mean, how do people take this? You know, some people mm. who may who may identify strongly with the notion of a black race, mm. but then put forward a particular idea, and then all of a sudden are mm. denied that form of identity. I don't know. To me, it seems like a giant mystery. And the problem is, of course, that it's it's unfalsifiable. Right. And I think you know, in what way? Just spell that out. You can't test this. So mm. how are you going to test the fact that these are black ideas or white ideas? So falsifiability yeah. is really important yeah. for philosophers and for scientists exactly. and should be for everyone. Okay, so Popper came up with the notion of falsifiability. Right. And what he said is if we're going to take a certain theory or a certain claim seriously, it must be testable and there must be a way of testing it to be false. We might find out that we can't in our test results that it's not false, but we need to be able to construct a test where it's at least logically possible for it to, 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 to turn out to be false. Exactly. Otherwise, we shouldn't accept it. Now, here's an example. So suppose I say to you there are gremlins in the attic. Okay, There's noises in the roof, and I say to you, my explanation, my theory, is that there are gremlins in the attic. Mm. And you say, well, I don't believe in gremlins. And I say, no, well, well, there are. There are gremlins in the attic. And you say, okay, let's test it. I want to walk upstairs and see them. And I mm. say, sorry, sorry, it doesn't work like that. Mm. The moment you walk up into the attic, the gremlins disappear. disappear. Yeah, mm. And you say, no, hold on. But you mean I can't check? And I say, yeah, you have to take it on faith. There's gremlins in the attic. So... I don't think you should accept 
my explanation. I mm. think you should look for another one. I think if we find that, let's say, there's water pipes in the roof that are rustling around or the roof tiles are baking in the sun and they increase and so they create creeks, that's a better explanation. Why? Because we can test it. Right. If there's water pipes, we can disconnect the water and see whether the, the creaking still happens. And if mm. it's roof tiles, we can see whether it happens on a cloudy day when they're not expanding in the sun. This is also smuggled in a different philosophical concept and or, or philosophical sort of idea, and that's Occam's razor. So yes. if we have a bunch of explanations, we should go with the, the most likely explanation. The simplest explanation. The simplest explanation. Thank you. That's, Correct. That's, that's and, exactly it. Well, the reason why why it's more likely is because it's, it's simpler. Simple. And, and what do we mean complexity by simple? Complexity adds uh, factors, yes. And, yes. and obviously that makes it less likely. And what we mean by complexity is it posits the existence of new types of things, like right. gremlins, right? right? We don't need gremlins to explain the Noises in the roof. We can we can explain away those creaks using other things that we know are there, like water pipes and roof tiles and sun and heat. Right. We don't need gremlins. Now, in this yeah. case, the question is, do we need race? And I don't think we do. I think all we need are individuals. We can talk about individuals behaving in certain ways, individuals believing certain things. We don't need to talk about those individuals as members of a group in order to understand them any better than we do. That just sort of seems to be distorting reality. Right. The objection, of course, is going to be, as you said earlier, that we're colorblind. And just mm. to take that a bit further, mm. the objection is going to be you are denying someone's identity. And that's a serious claim. Yeah. So how are we going to deal with that? Okay. So I want to say two things. I want to mm. say, firstly, of course, they identify as black. Of course, it's mm. part of their belief system. But a lot of us have beliefs that are false. Right. And they might be highly formative of who we are. So, for example, I might believe that something happened to me as a child which didn't happen. Or right. I might believe that I was abducted by aliens and it didn't happen. Now, if someone says to me, well, there are no aliens and you weren't abducted, do you think it's fair to say, well, you can't say that because you're denying my fundamental belief? You're denying my identity. It seems like when someone turns around and says there aren't aliens, that they're perfectly entitled to do so. So I'm not denying that it means a lot to people, mm. but I'm denying that the belief underlying mm. that, the mm. idea that they are part of a certain racial group, is incorrect. The thing is that we – and here I think this is really important to point out again – we don't deny the fact that people have false beliefs about people belonging to particular racial groups and sure. then treating them badly sure. on that very basis. Sure. And then people having experiences on that basis. Yeah. And ultimately, this all comes down to these false beliefs about race, but it doesn't come down to race itself. Correct. So when someone's being racist, they're not attacking black people. They're attacking who they believe to be black. And I think one can form a sense of identity around a struggle against injustice on the basis of the false belief and race. Yes. So I think it's very important to get rid of bigotry in the world. Exactly. Very important. And we're going to be doing a whole episode on racism. Right. And whether it's possible for black people to be racist because right. of power, which is really interesting. That is really um, interesting. So, so stay tuned for that. Indeed. Um, nice plug. So we're going to be discussing that at length. And we, and we take the problem of bigotry and racism very seriously. seriously. And we feel that the solution to that problem, one of the solutions, Maybe the, the first step is to get rid of the idea of race. Right, because it kind of seems strange to want to try and fight an injustice that is based on this false belief of race by reinvoking or waking up the very concept that has caused so much trouble in the past. Yeah, as people say, it's like fucking your way to virginity. Right? It, it does seem like exactly that. Yeah, it's using the very concept that you feel has created divisions and divisiveness mm -hmm. to try and fix the solution. And um, I mean, it just seems incredibly, especially given the kind of problems that 
the false belief in race has brought about the loadedness of the term race, you know, racial terms. Do we really want to bring this along? Do we really want to schlep this stuff along from the past into our current world and think that this is somehow going to aid in us dealing with injustice? It just seems odd. It seems fundamentally at odds. Mm. So going forward in these episodes, what we're going to be doing is really understanding some of the core debates around race mm. and keeping in mind this idea that race might not exist. You can still have debates about white privilege, about racism, about affirmative action. We can discuss all these things and it's still very complex how we might arrive at answers. And in the background, still have this, this skepticism around what race exactly is. Absolutely. And, and that it exists at all. Maybe we can end off well with a nice sort of analogy from Appiah, and I think you, you might have something to say about it. But Appiah sort of likens the, the notion of race to the way early chemistry dealt with various chemicals. So basically early chemistry classified substances according to taste, um, color, that kind of thing. And in fact, you know, these things told us nothing about the nature of the actual substance. So mm. it actually told us nothing about the chemistry of the substance. Mm. That was just like completely false. And I think you might uh, have something to add to that particular yeah. point. So, so, so the thing is, the Appiah point is interesting. So the idea that when you try to understand a group or a type of phenomenon, you might look at its characteristics as you see them on the outside. So right. sense, sense-based characteristics mm-hmm. like taste, touch. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know what a black person tastes like, but, <laughs> but like you might say, you might say like the way they look, you know, mm-hmm. uh, morphology. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've said there's problems there. And then mm-hmm. you might look underneath and say mm-hmm. there's some kind of underlying basis. So like genetics mm-hmm. or uh, ancestry. And we've said neither of those works either. But I think there's another point to make here, which is that in our conceptions of whiteness and blackness, which we've used for centuries, if those conceptions make sense, if it makes sense to talk about white people or black people, we're going to have to make sense or give an account that doesn't require incredibly sophisticated philosophical or scientific discoveries. Why? Because we've used these terms for so long. Without all of that. Exactly. So we can't ad hoc go and mm. say, oh, this is what we meant, because mm. surely not. I mean, a no. hundred years ago, they didn't know about, about genes in the way we know about them today. They hadn't done those experiments. Right. And so we can't say there's a genetic account of race. Right. So... On the one hand, you can't look at obvious features like like morphology. Color, morphology. Yeah, they don't right. work for reasons mm. we've given. And you mm. can't look at underlying features. Right. So it seems like you're stuck. Yeah. And this is, I think, where we're going to end off this first podcast of ours. Thanks, Z. Thanks, Jason. Thanks to Victor, Molly, Sean, Gugu, Tefatswa, and Katanda for speaking to us on campus. Many thanks to our sanity checker, Mark Oppenheimer, for his invaluable input around the content of this episode. Join us for our next episode, where we'll be discussing the concept of power in racial identity politics. See you then. This is cliffcentral.com.